Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Are you not entertained? Hello everybody and welcome to a special History in Technicolor. Special, one, because we've got a current film to talk about and two, because we have got one person, it's not just me, we haven't got two people, it's not just me and Wolf, it is three people, it is me, Wolf and Henry. So, I am David Crowther, History in Technicolor podcast, I am joined by Wolf, Wolf, introduce yourself. It, it's uh, it, it's a me, um, it's me, Wolf O'Neill, um, from History and Technicolor. Okay, great. Perfect. Thank you, Wolf. And Henry. Henry, introduce yourself. And I'm Henry Theodore Logan. Excellent. Fantastic. So, we are gathered here today in the face of the podcasting community to talk about a recent film which we don't always do we're here to talk about skiddly rot's napoleon because everybody is talking about it now you might say as we normally start why are we proposing this film and i would say from my point of view well why would we not it's ridley scott described as the greatest gift of film interviewers and this time is no different he's really been having a hoot also hate it, or indeed loathe it, whatever his faults, and I think they made me legion, a new Scott movie is an event, isn't it? There will be a few quid spent on it. So, those are my reasons. Wolf, Henry, your reasons? Um, as you said, it's the number one film that everyone is talking about. It's in the news every day. Um, there are incredible interviews happening every couple of days with Ridley Scott. He has new quotes that are coming out that are changing everything, and I think we've got to be on top of what's hot and what's new. Yes, Ridley Scott's always an event. I love many of his films, and they're always big budget. They have a lot of money thrown at them, and they're really like often action-packed, are very good-looking, and it was exciting to see Napoleon done in this format with $200 million thrown at it. So I went in it not knowing as much about the history... I think along with Wolf, I am of the generation that was introduced to Napoleon, not from my history teacher, but from Bill and Ted. So I think Hollywood does have its bright spots. So thank you, Hollywood. And Bill and Ted are two of them, it has to be said. Right. OK, so we're going to go through the normal history and technicolor format. So I'm going to introduce the film. Uh, then we're going to talk about the film. And then we're going to talk about the history. And then we're going to grade it. OK. So, what is it, exactement? Well, it's a film about Napoleon, as the title says. Although, question, should it really be Napoleon et Josephine? Anyway, to be discussed. It is an Apple original film, written by David Scarper, directed by Riddles. You may not know about Ridley. 
He has directed some films before, Gladiator, that sort of thing. Everyone, I have a question for you immediately. Ridley Scott's best and worst film. My personal favourite of Ridley's is Alien. I think it's a classic horror film, and the xenomorph, of course, is fantastic, along with Ellen Ripley. But I'd say my least favourite definitely was Exodus, because I thought it was just too long and way too much whitewashing. Um, It would be very easy to copy Henry's answers, because they're probably the definitive answers. There is no greater flattery than imitation, Wolf. Yeah, so I guess I'll copy Henry. But I think that Gladiator and Blade Runner are worth mentions. They are quite enjoyable films. And Blade Runner is... It's time to die, Wolf. It is pretty good. I have not seen The Last Duel yet, personally. I have personally heard it's a good film. So I'm, I'm excited to see that. And then on the contrary, I've heard that The House of Gucci is terrible. That was his last movie. So he, he has an up-and-down career. Yes, he does have an up-and-down. That is the thing. There are ups and there are downs. Okay, so uh, my best and worst, the Gladiator best, Exodus the worst. So they have spent a few quid on it. Henry has already mentioned this. 200 million quid on it, exactly. A lot of it, interestingly enough, was filmed in Blighty, as it happens, as well as Malta. So Lincoln Cathedral stood in for Notre Dame which has made quite a lot of people quite cross. The cast, Joaquin Phoenix as Napoleon Bonaparte, who is the Emperor of the French. Vanessa Kirby, Empress of Josephine, Empress Consort and First Wife of Napoleon. Sinead Cusack, Letitia Bonaparte, Edouard Filtonat as Alexander I, he's very smooth. Ian McNeese as Louis Eighteenth, who is a dream. Rupert Everett as Arthur Wellesley, Duke of Wellington. Oh, Oh, superb. Paul Rees as Talleyrand, the leading diplomat and arch survivor of France and a character about you. You could make a legion of movies. I have a question already for you to again. I'm sorry about that. Uh, Why is it? Am I wrong in this? But why is it that period dramas seem to require English accents to be authentic? I mean, Talleyrand, at random, who is as French as pâté de foie gras or tarte aux pommes, is a repressed English bloke. C'est une crime, n'est-ce pas? Discuter. All I can say personally is I think it's just way too much liking or bias towards the Anglosphere. Yep, I, I mean, I can't disagree. It's just conceptually odd, as though you have to have a foreign accent. It's an American movie. You have to have a, a foreign accent, but it has to be an English foreign accent. Why can't it be an American foreign accent? Or would be better, a French one? Yeah, every medieval fantasy or period drama that takes place in Europe, it seems, has to be British English. It's very odd. Anyway, I mean, I'm not complaining because it gives us lots of jobs. Great. And I'm like, you know, whatever. Anyway, it was just an observation. I, I will admit it is strange to have French actors doing English voices. I guess it adds a, a slight level of authenticity in that they do sound like they're Europeans putting on an accent. Do you think it would have been better if Ridley made this film with... French actors. I think if I was going to watch a French film, then yes, and I love watching foreign film and I don't have any issues with that and have it all in its native language with French speakers, um, that's great. But if I'm watching a Hollywood movie, I have no problem with all of the accents being from wherever because I just kind of think that's the reality of it. I don't think it's the most important thing to critique with this film that Joaquin Phoenix has an American accent and Vanessa Kirby has an English accent because we all know the film would be far worse if they got Joaquin and Vanessa and everyone to do French accents. It would be so much worse. Yeah, agree. And, and I think that we just have to take it and not worry too much about it. Fair enough. Good point. The voice of reason. OK, so the other thing I want to say about this is that it has been a hoot watching it, because we've been very excited. Henry and I have been you know, waiting for ages for this movie. So we've been watching the news and doing other things coming out in the trailers. And we thought, great, oh, look at this. So I've been watching it very closely. And I've been on social media, on Facebook about it. And I've been reading all the stuff. And it's been fascinating to see how things have changed. So, for example, I normally get the views from Rotten Tomatoes, Metacritic and IMDb. And I gathered them for this podcast. And This podcast has been a few weeks in the making. So a few weeks ago, I took the ratings and Rotten Tomatoes, for example, 88% from the critics, 
91% from the audience. Now the critics are 58% and the audience 59%. They have stunk like a stone. But that's really interesting because we've been through a process where everybody started saying, this is a great movie. This is fantastic. Good Lord, look at this. <gasps> the colours. Ah, but now that's changed. Now everybody's really, really cross about it. And it's been a fantastic arc. So you've got sort of three responses, I think. If you are a historian and lover of the period, this is a scandal, a travesty, an Anglo-American takedown of a great man, horribly inaccurate historically. Andrew Roberts, the historian, almost had a heart attack. I felt sorry for him. I almost called the doctor. If you're French, it is part of the endless Anglo-French culture war. Why is Napoleon an American, but at least he's not from South Shields? Vive la Révolution. Napoleon is still alive and escaped from Tenor, but bring him back, and this time we'll invade Britain and finish the job, English pig dogs. And have I mentioned the smell of elderberries? Number, vision number three. Hey, but wow, there are amazing images. Isn't it pretty? So in general, I think that's been kind of the public debate. I might be wrong. I think this happens with every film. But I do think that a lot of early responses, production companies want to push as many positive reviews as they can. They want to leak as much positive press as they can. They will buy and cherry pick as much as they can kind of manage in order to get that really good opening release. So you hear a bunch of good stuff. Then the film comes out. All the most diehard fans go to watch it straight away. They're the people who are most likely to enjoy the film. So the initial response is usually pretty high. And then when a wider audience kind of slowly makes it to the film after a week or two, they're a lot more on the fence. And then when they don't start to like it, then word of mouth starts to change. And you also just get any, regardless of how good the film is, you always get the backlash. So it has a constant trend. But for, I would say, average to bad movies, unless there's been like a, a leak early about like some terrible thing that's been going on in the production, it will kind of creep in after the first few days where people, audiences are a bit dissatisfied and then that spreads. The impression I'm getting from seeing people coming out of the film is that some people are getting a bit bored and like it's, it's dropping off, the audience numbers are decreasing, whereas it was quite big and popular at the start. So... I think it's just like a general trend. The film is not as good as it as it could be, and it's kind of suffering that that audience decline. Great, very very professional. I'm liking the professionalism here because you, you know what you're talking about. There, it feels like it's this melting pot also as it expands to way more audiences so of course like french critics have been very negative about it from a historical standpoint many of them say it's anti-french it's way too pro-british so i think um it's been far more divisive but i think that's also what's made it more interesting because as mark Kermode says divisive films get people talking and it makes them more interesting fantastic right okay wolf so Take us through the film and lead us on a discussion about what we thought about this, Napoleon, as a film. OK, plot-wise, it's fairly obvious. Pretty standard, linear approach. We start early on in Napoleon's life with the Battle of Toulon, and then you progress all the way through to the Battle of Waterloo. Um, you focus on kind of the key moments in his life, but it's mainly about his relationship with Josephine. So you focus on their meeting, wedding, the affairs, the lack of children, the divorce post-separation life and their deaths. And it's also told through the regular use of their like letter exchanges. And I guess it's the narrator voice. It's usually Napoleon and to an extent Josephine communicating back and forth with each other through these letters. I actually like that the central focus of the film is the romance. Now, this is not a unique idea. Ridley talks all about how this film is just like a romance film. That's kind of his main the main thrust behind it. And I do think that is has the potential to unlock this mystical, like mythical figure of Napoleon, one of the kind of the great historical figures of the last thousand years or so. And it, what a way to kind of approach him to take all of these key battles and historic moments that we think about all the time and then kind of divert our attention from that to his personal life, his more private musings and his desires and the guilts and kind of tragedies in his own personal life. I think that's great. I think that's a really good idea. It has the potential to explore his character to a deeper level and reveal a, like a new understanding or new perspective on this famous man that we kind of all have an idea of. Now, I'm not sure that that actually works, and I'm not sure that the film works, 
but I appreciate the approach and I think that it is it's well worth trying. I think it's a good effort. Can I just say at this point, Wolf, that I know that Ridley would be pleased. Good effort. Good effort, Riddles. I, you know, I, I, know, I can't imagine who wouldn't be pleased with that. I think there's, there's not a, a, a doubt in my mind that he will never listen to this. He couldn't give <laughs> And if he did, he would just trash us the whole time. Could be right. I, if Ridley could, I think he would shoot historians like from his garden porch and like reviewers. Especially millennial critics for not seeing his film. Yeah, yes. Absolutely, yes. Oh, here's a, here's a fun point. Um, he's talked about how The Duelists is his, like, the gateway to, like, how he came up with this film. During lockdown, he found a load of other films boring, so he started watching his own back catalogue again. I think that's what I read. And then as he was going through his own films, he watched The Duelists again, and he was like, oh, this is a great movie that I made. One that we conveniently did on a previous episode. We did. And that follows two soldiers in this constant fight that they have with each other throughout the Napoleonic Wars. And it ends with this, uh, I think there's a shot of Napoleon. And so he's kind of this figure that looms over it. And through rewatching his own films, he started thinking about Napoleon again. And kind of found the, the nuggets of that story in The Duelists, which kind of led to this. Interesting. On Napoleon, I think the, the battles are quite exciting. I will say they are not Ridley's best. It's not Gladiator, it's not Kingdom of Heaven, it's not there. But it is still a sight to behold, one worth going to the cinema for. And I absolutely loved when they formed Square. I loved it. I don't know, there's this one sharp episode, which is, I think, the Waterloo episode, where Paul Bettany's William of Orange refuses to form Square in defense of cavalry charges. I think about Sharp's angry cries to form square all the time. So when it happened in this film, I was like, yes, two thumbs up. That's nice. And it's working brilliantly. I can see how the strategic formation works perfectly against cavalry. Nice. I must admit, I saw quite a lot of comments about that on the line, about people saying, hey, that was an amazing bit. It's true. Oh, good, good. Who was the actor who played the Duke of Wellington? Rupert Everett. Uh, Rupert Everett. My favourite do you think you, Wolf, would remember that as much as Dad did with Rupert Everett's grimace during the Battle of Waterloo? Because it was a constant look of, hmm, what is, what is the young lad up to? It was a classic. I loved it. I mean, he was just being Rupert Everett. Rupert Everett was but, one of the best uh, parts about this film, without a doubt. He was. And that kind of leads me on to my next point, which is about the comedy. The comedy is quite fun. It's all a little bit tongue-in-cheek. People have really enjoyed sharing the line where he's like, oh, you think you're so great just because you have boats? <laughs> um, they've been sharing that one around a lot. I think that having Rupert Everett as Wellington is genius casting. I do think that it slightly throws the film off for me. I can't take it seriously because it's Rupert Everett. He's naturally very funny. And I think his performance of Wellington is quite funny. Even if he's being serious, everything is just slightly too comical and Ridley said it's a comedy he said you should find it funny did he say that well he did yeah I had not heard that actually did he actually say that because that was going to be my great reveal that was going to be my contribution to this entire program which oh, you know no. just ruined incidentally but you know that was going to be the thing this is a comedy well, Ridley said it, it's it's funny and you should find it funny so those kind of like well by golly by gum those are my positives the comedy's good I think the battle sequences are pretty good I think that the approach of the story and kind of the, the breadth of its aim is, it's, it's good, and I, I, I like it. And I want to hear why you both like it. I did go into this film with a more black and white sense of getting a serious historical lesson about Napoleon and his exploits throughout Europe, but also about his personal life, his relationships with Josephine. And I thought that was a very good angle, as Wolf said. I thought that was a really interesting take, and that could have been really good. And I do have some of the same positives as Wolf did. The battle sequences are... I thought they were quite good, except for, like, one major issue I had with them. It's a really good-looking film. It really is. Uh, Austerlitz was beautiful to look at. The mountains, the fog everything. And also, when he walks into into Moscow, it's so eerie, and so you really get the sense that it's abandoned, and the CGI they included, uh, if it was CGI models, but it was really convincing, and I loved the shot where they're inside the Winter Palace. I may be getting them the settings mixed up, but overall, it's a really good-looking film. 
I think the production team really did their jobs well. And and yes, also, it was quite a funny film. But personally, I thought it was more of a mixed bag. The one issue I had about the battle scenes, the reason I didn't like them as much as, say, in Gladiator, is because I didn't have much of an emotional investment in what was going on. Because it did feel messy, it did feel like it was jumping to these set pieces in his career. And it came to the point where I didn't really buy the sense that he was a conquering leader because it was focusing so much in a short amount of time against Austria, against Russia, uh, glossing over some of the other countries he conquered. So even though the battle sequence were visually quite spectacular, I felt like I didn't really care that much about what was happening, about uh, how it viewed Napoleon and the people who died. So that was just my... That was my main issue with them. I didn't think they were as good as others I've seen in Ridley Scott's arsenal of films. I thought it was messy in its storytelling. It felt quite disjointed and it seemed to gloss over important events way too quickly. So it felt like a far more scatterbrained telling. And one of them was how talked about how he conquered Italy, and it seemed like he glossed over that, and it's just never talked about again. And there's just all these events that feel like they're just glossed over, and it make, it just made the experience feel more shallow to me from a script-writing standpoint, from how the film is written. So I think this is another case that we see many times each year of a film that cares more about its visuals and its production than its writing. I think that some of the writing is good, like the comedy. And I think it's good to have some comedy in films, because even like some of the films that take a more dark approach, like people talk a lot about The Dark Knight and how it's influenced all these other films to be dark and gritty. That film has a lot of humour. But like all said, I think it was done that it was a bit difficult to take seriously at times. For my two penneth, I think part of the problem was a failing in me. When I went into this film, I took a load of baggage with me. I was expecting an epic. I was expecting Gladiator, whatever. And I didn't get it. And at the first 15 minutes, I almost walked out because it was just chaos. The age thing of the actor, I buy the thing about, look, the actor's going to get older, so why does it matter if they're older at the beginning? But it just was unbelievable, the love affair and the him finding his feet in a changing world, looking 55. He looked like a dirty old man, and it just it got in the way. The events were chaos. There's far too much, like every biopic that tries to go from soup to nuts, there's way too much to do in one film, which is why he did what he did, I think, because you can't, there's no way you can do all of that. It's just not possible. It's, you know, it's the French Revolution. So the first 15 minutes, I, you know, I was this, oh, what am I doing here? This is awful. I'm hating it. And then I suddenly had a sort of Damascene moment when I realised, ah, oh, hang on. This is, what's the word? Historical critics. Oh, a bit of a hoot. Um, he's having a bit of a fun here. And I kind of got into the swing of it and actually started to enjoy it a lot more. I still hated Phoenix's age at the start, but grew into that later on as it, as it grew older. Basically, I thought that he thought there's no point in historical accuracy here because there is too much history. So he went for cartoon. He went for a story of sexual obsession and megalomania. And he put on a show around that. He described it, I think, as a character study. And I think that's how we should look at it. The relationship with Josephine, obviously, as you say, Wolf was central to the idea, to the character study. And what he's describing is a weird, obsessive, compulsive, borderline sociopath, not improper of control of himself. And I think that's the reason why there's none of the legal code, education reforms, blah, 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 and all the rest of it, because that would get in the way of that narrative. Surely you can't have a, you know, a sociopath redesigning the legal code in an incredibly thoughtful, structured, meaningful way that still exists today. It just gets in the way of the story. That it wasn't quite about Josephine and Napoleon, because it's always from Napoleon's point of view. The last thing, I thought the images were fantastic. You know, the horses under the ice at Austerlitz, the battle scenes were great. I mean, there's, you couldn't 
discern the battle. It was they were a complete mess and incomprehensible. I think very few people died on the lake at Austerlitz, actually. But anyway, I did think the images were amazing. Can I also just say the music was really good as well. The best, the best track I think was Austerlitz when they were breaking the ice. It's like that battle rhythm that they play. And I thought that was really thrilling. Yeah, it's great. Music's good. Um, I actually quite liked the Battle of Toulon at the beginning. Yes. Yes, he looked old, but I suspended my disbelief and I could pick up from his performance that he was playing a young person because of how nervous and frightened and kind of edgy his performance was at the start versus kind of the person that he becomes. That did give me deer in the headlights. And I thought that that was... That was convincing enough for me that I was able to, to kind of follow that early battle. And I thought it was nice with that one because they actually spent a bit of time on it. So when they had him doing the recce, you start to learn what his plan is going to be. You start to see how his mind works. You get a feeling for the setting and the problem. And then you see him like tackle the problem and then the events unravel. So it's quite a like rewarding battle sequence to go through. And it gives you a good sense of like who Napoleon is as a character. So I thought that was quite good. Negative-wise, I, I kind of agree. We'll, I think it'll be interesting to explore why we all think that the that Josephine doesn't work too well and why the relationship between the two of them is not that convincing or compelling, especially as that seems to be the central point of the film. It's worth adding that much like Kingdom of Heaven, so the theatrical release of Kingdom of Heaven, hated. Terrible. Botched the movie. But the consensus among fans is that the four-hour director's cut is by far the superior version, and it takes it from an average movie to like a five-star masterpiece. I know we watched it and we thought, oh, it's not that much different, but you know, fine. There's a four-hour version of this movie that's out there waiting to be released. There's like this larger cut of the film, which is an extra hour and a half worth of footage, assuming you believe what's, what's posted. And I think it would make sense, considering how rushed this is, how everything has to like jump through all the different events in his life pretty quickly, that there's a, there's a longer version which spends much more time um, padding out his life and kind of fulfilling more of that like entire biopic. But even then, I think the whole point of the film is wrong. It opens with the death of Marie Antoinette. I kept going back to Sofia Coppola's Marie Antoinette, which we also did in a previous episode, and how that was able to approach the biopic in this really refreshing interesting perspective that wanted to highlight certain aspects of her character and then kind of play with them and have fun while i think that this movie is having fun and is playing with certain aspects of napoleon's character it is nowhere near as focused or uh, clear in its direction which is why we get a two and a half hour movie that feels bloated and also thin when i think you can kind of tell that there's there's a much more concise, impactful story in there, which is the one that where you focus almost purely on their relationship. Something about this just doesn't work. And as Henry said, it's messy. You've said it's disjointed. The impact coming from the three of us, the consensus coming through from anyone you speak to and like the reviewers is that it's really not working. Something is off. And I think some of it's the comedy, as we've highlighted. It, it makes it hard to gauge the tone of the film and how you're meant to be perceiving of what's happening. For example, the scene with the pharaoh in the sarcophagus. He has to climb on a stool. I'm like, oh, okay, so, so you're giving me that he's really short. And then is this meant to be like an impactful moment where he's engaging with this figure from this ancient world, one that he reveres? Quite, I think there's, you can tell that he reveres the ancient world, although they then have him shoot the pyramids, so maybe not. And he wants to be seen as this like Julius Caesar, this Alexander the Great. And then he touches the, the mummy and it like falls over and gets damaged inside the sarcophagus and everyone's standing around like looking at each other like uh-oh why has he done this but ridley's ridley's mocking him there isn't he yeah he must ridley be. is saying this is a this is a jumped up guy thinks he's this great guy and actually he's just a mass murderer he's mocking him you know i don't think that's comedy i think well that is comedy with a point but ridley doesn't like napoleon obviously he hates him did you enjoy watching it no I didn't, because I've got a poker up my bum about Napoleon, who I think is this extraordinary historical character, incredibly complex, who does these amazing, incredible things, and I'm seeing him ripped to shreds, and I do not want to see him ripped to shreds. If this was Gladstone or, I don't know, Robert Peel or 
Clement Attlee, I would be livid. I would declare war. So, no, I don't enjoy it at all. But I think that's what it is. There were some very funny moments where he says, my destiny won me this lamb chop, for example, which is one I particularly enjoy. Uh, He's killing Napoleon here. It's, It's comedy for a purpose. I do think that comes across. My point is, like, as a viewer... I didn't find this, I found the scene, maybe this is the same thing you were saying, where you're trying to figure out the movie. At that point in the film, as an audience member, I was a little bit uncomfortable in my seat because I was trying to figure out the tone of the film. I was trying to figure out what it thinks about its central character. I was trying to figure out if I'm meant to be laughing because the room is silent. No one was laughing, but it's giving off the vibes that you should be awkwardly laughing at this character. Maybe kind of my last points on, on the film in that sense. I wish it had been a, it had gone further. I think it was a bit too balanced sometimes in its uh, approach. I wouldn't have minded if this was Caligula. As much as I think it's like there's this distracting line of comedy, I think so much of it is this really serious, stern film. And you can almost feel that kind of grumpy look that Napoleon has on his face like to the movie. I don't think it's like a, a fun comedy. I think it's like pretty serious, but it has this line of like mocking and deriding of it of its central character. It's meant to give a heyday to historians. You'd look at those lines he says about the English thinking they're so great that because they have boats, and historians or people who love history would look at that probably a lot differently from others who maybe don't know as much. Maybe some of that contributed a bit to why others thought it was funny, or others were not reacting as strongly. I think that's absolutely true. You know, it's your perspective which makes a big difference. If you're prepared to think, okay, well, this is a, this is a bit of a bit of flim flam, and Ridley Scott's pushing it out there to have a hack at Napoleon, and it doesn't matter. I'm just going to enjoy the show. Then it's one thing. When we get onto history, the rage about the history says as much about historians or people who love history as it does about people who love film. Can I ask you then, what do you think um, Ridley's perception of their relationship is? What I read into it was this is a an awful relationship, a toxic relationship, uh, starting off at the beginning of a marriage of convenience for her and an act of passion for him because she's very vulnerable. Obviously, she's been cast adrift by the revolution. Her husband's been killed. She's been in prison. She's lost control of her worldly goods. She is very, very vulnerable and she needs a protector. And how that changes a little bit and they have this weird relationship, this obsessive relationship. I didn't find it that compelling. What did you think of it? I'm going to ask another question first before I answer that. How do you feel about the end cards that come up at the very end of the movie? The first one comes up and it, it lists all of the French casualties at every battle that he's been a part of. Which, oddly, is a trend that starts to happen about halfway through the movie. Like, the first time that he like has a catastrophic like death toll of French soldiers, the tallies start to come up at the bottom. A trend which did not happen early on in the film, doesn't happen in any of his early battles, but starts to creep in later, I guess when he starts to lose control and become a megalomaniac. That's when they start to kind of add that in. So he dies, uh, and then it comes up, and it's like, this is all of the people that died in every one of his battles, and it, it tallies up to three million people. And then it fades to black, and it comes up, and it goes, his last words were, France, army, Josephine. Did you have any feelings about that? Any lasting thoughts that that kind of gave you as you left the film? I did not have much of a strong opinion when that came up. I had known beforehand that it was in the millions, but with the France, army, and Josephine, I think that was trying to amplify how much of an influence his almost psychological battle with his relationship with Josephine was, and how much that would have played into his military campaigns. It did give me that vibe, because uh, it was quite a tumultuous relationship. It does quite amplify it overly to create dramatic effect, because apparently he did not leave Egypt because his wife cheated on him, or um, he didn't slap her during when they were signing their divorce papers. 
But that's the emotional response I got, was that it was trying to show, in just three words, the impact that his personal life has had on his campaign, especially when you have this very, like, school-boy-or-girl-esque cartoonish view of him is that he was a military uh, commander who almost conquered all of Europe. And you look more about his personal life and how much that impacted him. But that was the response I I got as, as a more casual viewer. And with The Dead, I, I assume that was also from all sides, not just France. I think three million is the low side. All I wanted to try and get at is if we think that Ridley hates Napoleon more than anyone on Earth and it was just a complete takedown of him, or if his relationship with Josephine is this gateway to presenting a slightly more nuanced or vulnerable or balanced depiction of his character that is different to the version of him that we get when he's conducting foreign affairs, when he's fighting in battle, when he's kind of having all these grand moments. If you ever thought that you were getting like different versions of his character kind of through that his personal life and the examinations of him there no there, there we have it thank, thank you david i agree with your initial thing you said at the beginning which was hey this is an interesting idea we maybe could get into somebody a bit more but no doesn't work not for me okay so with that sorry rather emphatic comment i'm sorry about that should we move on to the history and then we can have some general questions which i know we've thought about no i think uh, i think we're ready for you to uh, take us into the history david because i know you're going to enjoy this cool fact a crocodile can't stick out its tongue also you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states united healthcare short-term insurance plans underwritten by golden rule insurance company offer flexible budget-friendly coverage for you learn more at uh1.com so, I think we should be very short on the history, actually, because it made Braveheart look like a documentary, doesn't it? There was a lovely exchange from the Napoleonic Society. It was shared by Rob Coughlin of this parish. It is a long, it is a long list of errors. Well, they got the uniforms right. <laughs> Maybe they did. I mean, this is a train smash in terms of accuracy, I think. So, I don't think we should bother... He couldn't get everything in. He's made a whole load of elisions. I mean, Henry, you mentioned the Italian wars. And I think at one point he says, oh, well, there weren't many wars in Italy. They gave up straight away. That ain't true. It's absolutely not about history, I would argue. And there's no point talking about it as uh, for historical accuracy. That is a little reductionist. That is my view. I have a history question for you, David. Go on. So if Josephine was involved in numerous relationships and she already had been the mistress of the guy who introduces them in the film and she was mistress to a number of other important french figures throughout her life what did they say that she was the napoleon of the bedroom was like a, a quote that i read like of where he is to the battlefield um in terms of like how she used her power and influence and she never like struggled in life as a result and also napoleon as he says in the film was having numerous affairs and he never rushed home from egypt to return to her because he was sleeping with other people and the scene where they add in that the mother brings a young girl for him to sleep with so that he can have an heir this wasn't happening he was having multiple heirs with multiple women kind of throughout his life at least i think he had two his desire to have an heir is still an important part of the story. But what I'm trying to work out is how much is this like a modern view of relationships? And at the time, this, the kind of the way that they were interacting with each other, where they were having these kind of um, illicit uh, interactions with others while they're off traveling the world, is that pretty common? I'd have said at this stage, we're still in absolutely solid double standard period where for him to have affairs would be perfectly normal and perfectly acceptable, for her to have affairs was completely unacceptable and you know very non-standard and would have made him react in the way that he does. Um, and did you have any one particular historical moment that really infuriated you, that made you grip hold of the seats in the cinema and shake with rage? I think once I'd realised that I was in a different kind of film, that no, not really. Actually, I think it's a bit pointless. It's just not what the film is about. You might hate the film, but it's just not what the film is about. You should just stop, because you're never going to get to the end of all the inaccuracies. You're never going to get to the end of it. 
How did you feel about Ridley being so openly anti-historian in his press junket? I think it was very funny. One of my questions to you was, so he said specifically, I think at one point, all you historians shush, after all, you weren't there. And I was going to ask you what Leopold von Ranke, the father of modern source-based scientific history, what he would say in response to riddles. You have to say it in German, though. Oh, uh, this is not going to go well. I am learning Italian, though, so I, I maybe would stand a slightly better chance if, if you'd uh, asked me that, but I'm also not going to attempt it. No, he wouldn't have been happy, would he? No, I thought he'd hate every single second of the, of the press junket. He'd be watching all those videos, all the interviews. He, he'd be incensed. I personally think it's very, very funny. And... Very funny. A pretty smart little... Uh, marketing trick whether he intended it or not yeah because the buzz it's it started i think this is why the film is doing quite well because every day there's more articles in newspapers and online where people are becoming absolutely incensed the historical inaccuracies are so rife that it's making people go to the cinema to see just how crazy it is the trench warfare during the battle of waterloo I've got to go see this. I can't believe they've done this. And then just his kind of inflammatory remarks or the one where he was like, oh, well, the French didn't like it, but they didn't even like themselves. So who cares kind of thing. Nice touch that one, I thought. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) It is wild. Yeah. As I say, God's gift to interviewers, isn't it? Yeah. And I, I have to appreciate somebody who is going to kind of make boring press junket interviews, this kind of quite exciting scene where we're like, okay, fine, let's go with it. Actually, I thought one of the more interesting historical takes was the view of Arthur Wellesley, actually, that Napoleon had conquered the world just because he was badly brought up and had sheerly bad manners. I thought that was an excellent historical analysis and probably very true. Now then, I want you to do a Napoleon X Factor based on this film and based on your understanding of Napoleon. So I want you to give me two scores, Henry and Wolf, on a scale of 0 to 10, with 0 being Napoleon is a brutal, sexually obsessive, murdering tyrant with no redeeming features worth the price, and 10 being enlightened reformer and military genius with a bit of a crush on Josephine, who defended his country against external aggressors, carried the principles of liberties to the oppressed people of Europe. If he's that, 10. So firstly, give me your score based on your understanding of history about Napoleon. Question to you, Henry. Uh, Seven. Hmm? Okay. Quite positive, quite positive. I will say probably there was a mixture of he may have cared deeply about his country and had a philosophical view on how it should be run, but also because it wouldn't be surprising seeing all these films that um, so many have massive egos and so would probably take advantage of all of life's pleasures. I think there is definitely, obviously, a mix of both. I think like many others during the French Revolution, like Robespierre, he may have had this viewpoint on how the country should be run, like he when he passed the, the Code Napoleon, but also because he felt he was such a genius that he could literally spread this to the rest of Europe. So that's just my take from seeing the film, my past experience in learning about him. Because I, I am disappointed that Ridley did not uh, go in for this to be a history film because I'm more into that stuff, personally. Yeah, me too. So if, uh, if there's a lot about Napoleon in the film that's not accurately depicted as historians, most historians put it, then that's underwhelming to me. My historical knowledge is pretty bad, um, so I didn't know of him that well. So I'm going to score him... I'm, I maybe, maybe I'm going to score him on, like, a four for history, and then I'm going to score him a five... For the movie, okay, and I'm going to go over five for the movie. The fence post is perfectly pointed into my buttocks. I'm right on the fence. <laughs> Excellent. I can see the splinters from here, Wolf. But doing his, all I wanted to say is doing historical research highlights that the film doesn't do him any justice at yes. all. It reveals that the film is just the, the caricature version of him that's equal to that of the one we see in Bill and Ted. It's really not that much more developed. That's actually quite a good point. In fact, Bill and Ted may be closer to the truth. How do you think this film compares, if you've seen them, to your experience watching other films about Napoleon, say, like Waterloo? 
It's interesting. I love Waterloo. I love Waterloo because I saw it at Six Film Film Club, and I loved it because of the battle scene and the colours. And Napoleon was a serious person. It wasn't a caricature. It wasn't a great movie, to be honest, although I love it. I'm not a big fan of this movie, but I think I've only ever seen Waterloo as my other movie to compare it with. I tragically have seen, I would say, no Napoleon movies. I have not seen the 1920s one, which the BFI is showing a lot at the moment, which is that like six-hour silent version, which is apparently incredible and is, I guess, a definitive depiction of him. I'm used to seeing him much more, as we say, like in Bill and Ted, as this kind of caricatured um, figure. I do have one more question, and this is like more general. We were talking about biopics before. Do you think biopics actually work? I think we've had this question before, haven't we? Uh, you and I, Wolf. I don't think biopics work generally, but I think that's a bit sweeping because I love the one about Eddie the Eagle, and I love the one about what's his name, that singer chap, Elton John, Rocket Man. I didn't like the one about Freddie so much. Anyway, generally, I always think people try to stuff too many much in them and they often don't work. Yeah, I would agree. I think we've said this before. Biopics on the whole don't work, but it's because everyone approaches them from the same perspective, which is I need to tell this person's life story from when they were born to when they died. And I need to try and highlight as many different things as I can during that time period. Whereas the really successful ones are the ones that focus on this two day period, this one event. What was it like for this? Or they uh, they play with the character so that you get an alternate view of them in a way that you'd never considered before. I think, for example, you may people may come out and be like, "Oh, Death of Stalin." That's a really it's not a biopic, sure, but it's a really interesting depiction of historical events. And maybe you'll learn something more about it than if you watch a really dry three hour movie. I at least commend this movie for being comedic and not stuffy. I think that is good because so many biopics are quite stuffy. Okay, shall we bring it to a close? Unless there's something you want to say before we sum up. So my last question is, is it possible for more modern historical figures to be venerated in the same way that figures from the ancient world were, i.e. Caesar or Alexander the Great, references that Napoleon himself bases his life off of. He wants to reach their heights. Napoleon himself seemingly never can reach that height. His reputation is kind of dragged up and decimated and, and played with and... Do you think that anybody in a more kind of modern world can achieve kind of their status? I mean, I think it's a great question. I would say Napoleon is very much venerated in that way. It's just that he faces a tradition of all those deaths as well. And therefore, his legacy will always be contested. But as you've seen from the response, this is a man who is revered by a lot of people as a genius. I think that distance does knock the edges off atrocity. Caesar killed countless people in Gaul, and we kind of move over that now, whereas history that still has an impact still lives with us, like well, even Cromwell. You judge them on a different scale, I think. So I, I think the answer is probably no. But you're saying you think that extrapolate into a thousand years' time from now, Napoleon will maybe be this mythical figure that everybody kind of reveres in the same breath as alexander the great i think they do now oh okay nice well good thank you david okay let's sum up then so we before we mark it would you recommend anyone go and see this film i think if you are going in for a history lesson to know more about napoleon i'd say go take it up with your local historian instead of see this film but if you're going in for some entertainment about a guy who had a massive ego and you don't care much about history and you like some some 18th and 19th century battles, I think you can potentially have a good time with this film. If you like Ridley Scott movies, if you like exciting battles, if you like big biopics, epic historical stories, you're probably going to have a good enough time that it's worth going to see this on the big screen. Also, you want to be a part of the discussion. You want to you want to figure out whether you liked it, whether you hated it, where you fall on the, the spectrum of all these questions we've been talking about. So I think you should go and see it. I would recommend it. That being said, if you think you're already going to hate it, if you already can feel yourself clenching your jaw as you listen, as you read, 
do not go. Stay far away. Look after yourselves. Yes, I agree. Yeah, I agree. I would say if they've got good ice cream yeah. in the cinema you're going to, then go and see it. If they haven't, just don't. Right, so let's mark it as a film. Quality of the film, 1 to 10. 10 being good, 1 being rubbish. 6 out of 10. It's slightly above average. Whoa. I'm going to go with my letterboxed score, which would make it a 4. I'm also getting a 4. So, historical accuracy. Can, did we have minus marks? Let's invent mi- a minus scale. Anyway, let's give it a score. We'll with zero. Must have got something right. Yeah. What did we get Braveheart? I mean, I think the uniforms are a bit more accurate than Braveheart, so I would probably... Yeah, you mentioned the uniforms. Yeah, yeah. so I would probably give it... I would probably give it more like a three or a four, but again, I'm not as familiar with Napoleon's history. That's good. I'm going to go one, which I think was our Braveheart score. Well, an interesting Braveheart comparison. Braveheart is kind of uh, like a mythologised character where the true events are not really known, and it's much further back in the past. So while we know that it's messing with history, surely it's a little bit more fair game. I think you're being nice to brave. I probably am. It's a very Hollywoodized mythology, I think. Don't start defending Braveheart on this programme, Wolf O'Neill. Okay, question for you. Would you rather watch Napoleon again, or Braveheart again? I will never see this movie again as long as I live. Braveheart. Braveheart wouldn't kill me if I saw it again. Would you see it again, Henry and Wolf? Mm, I would see... I think I'd rather see Napoleon again, to be honest. I think just from a filmmaking standpoint, it's that early 2000s level of cheesiness. I don't know if it's specifically to the early 2000s or the 90s, but there, there, was, a, there was a time period where their films are so corny in their dialogue, but it's just that quality of film production that doesn't quite appeal to me. So I think it probably would have to be Napoleon. I would not watch Napoleon again, and I would not watch the four-hour version if you released it. Like, you couldn't pay me to watch that. I have talked about a lot of positives. There were lots of things that I did enjoy, and I thought it was perfectly fine to go and watch once. I had a great time in the cinema. Lovely time. But it's too boring, and its, it's approach to history is not interesting. I would much rather watch Gladiator 2, which is filmed also in Malta, and is due out next year. Great news. I should be watching that. Absolutely right. Good news. How does Ridley always pull us back in again? Yes, I know. And he really does, doesn't he? Anyway, look, that is fantastic. We've warbled on for way too long. Thank you very much for listening, everybody. Come along to the Facebook site and come and have a chat to us about Napoleon. But don't go on about the helmet clips because there's no point. But rate the. tell us what you think and rate the score. We've had lots of chat anyway on the Facebook site, to be honest. Anyway. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for joining me, Wolf. Thank you very much for joining me, Henry. You're welcome. And see you all the next time we decide to have an episode. Thank you. Bye. Goodbye, everyone. Are you not entertained?